Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I have an interview with the author of Barbara Wade Rose, who wrote a biography about Canadian filmmaker Budge Crawley called Budge, What Happened to Canada's King of Film? Budge is now forgotten, of course, because, well, this is Canada. But uh, Budge Crawley was an early example of what would now be called an independent filmmaker. He was a pioneer, a movie lover, a hustler, a bit of an eccentric, and a bigamist. Yeah. So, lots to talk about, so let's get going with the interview right now. Uh, today we have uh, a guest on our show, uh, Barbara Wade-Rose, uh, a former uh, journalist but now a book author, who wrote a book about the independent fil Canadian filmmaker, Budge Crawley. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for doing this. So let's get right into it. Can you give me a, a short bio of uh, Budge? And then we'll get into the details. Certainly. Uh, Budge Crawley, who was born in 1912, I think it was, was over the 20th century Canada's most colorful film, film producer and also its um, most fiercely independent film producer. Um, and he was uh, started a firm called Crawley Films with his father's money. He did work for the National Film Board, but refused, refused to join it. Uh, because he wanted to have his own business. he His films, along with his wife, Judy Crawley, um, won hundreds of international awards. They dominated the Canadian Film Awards for the first decade of his, its existence, which are now the Juno Awards. I think I've got that right. And uh, they, um, they did produced and directed films uh, for the National Film Board, such as The Loon's Necklace, um, and a, uh, a series of films on Canada, including of Indigenous uh, stories and places that are no longer accessible or existing um, at this point in time, and filmed every province in Canada, but also moved on to, uh, he moved on to produce series for the CBC, the first CBC um, film series called the RCMP a fictional film series and uh, independent films that were big movies, uh, such as The Luck of Ginger Coffee, which starred Robert Shaw. And Shaw went on to impersonate Budge for his role as Henry VIII in the film A Man for All Seasons and was nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, Amanita Pestilence, which introduced Jean-Pierre Bougeol to the world. And he produced, he was a co-producer of The Rowdy Man, George uh, Gordon Pinson's famous um, film, God Rest His Soul. And uh, he won Canada's first uh, movie, uh, first Oscar for a feature length documentary for The Man Who Skied Down Everest, which was a film that he cobbled together from old footage and won an Oscar for it. And his, his story is quite as dramatic as his profession because he was living and working and fighting at a time when Canada was trying to decide what kind of film nation it wanted to be. 
and it changed throughout the course of his life, and he has become a parable of what has happened to Canadian film. Okay, thank you. That's pretty. That's a pretty good uh, summary. Um, now, but let's get into the the details of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess start with is Budge Crawler himself. His name was not Budge, right? It was uh, Frank Bradford. Correct. And yeah. there's that name on one of the National Film Board films that he con- they contract contracted out to him. He was under was under the name Frank Radford Callwit Crawley. Crawley. I'm sorry, Frank Radford Crawley. And it was a film about A.Y. Jackson of the Group of Seven that still is uh, available today. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he was born in Ottawa. Yes. And uh, which we don't really associate with filmmaking, to say the least. <laughs> That's Especially- correct. It's, um, <laughs> it, you know, the sleepy government town, as it's yeah. known. And uh, it, Budge yeah. woke it up, so to speak. <laughs> um, and the filmmakers he hired and um stinted for their their salaries and um and had all kinds of capers with and he infuriated them at times they uh were all from the ottawa area although some one one or two were english and uh, other places in canada um and quebec and sorry go ahead now well before getting too much into the like future because he was born in Ottawa, and he basically okay. Well, first of all, his let's talk about his uh, father. Oh yes, yeah, his, his childhood and his father. His father was an accountant, right? His a father was a very man. yes. His father was a very successful accountant and a very stern presence at home, and a very Christian uh, believer who had very strict rules: no doing anything fun on Sundays. Uh, no drinking, no swearing, no smoking. Uh, and Budge was not the best fit as his oldest son. And was, at first, Budge was supposed to become an accountant like his father. And in fact, he trained as one. But uh, he was a great swimmer. And his father, for his 16th birthday, which would have been the early 20s, gave uh, Budge a film camera so he could film his swimming stroke. And Budge appropriated the camera for all kinds of uh, movies. His first was called Glimpses of Canoe Trip, which is at the archives, which is Budge and his friends doing the things you do on a camping trip, playing poker and canoeing and so forth. But the uh, the editing is really good. And the perspective, you know, taking doing the film from dis- different perspectives is good. Um, and then that started. He, he he bit the bug, or the bug bit him. And uh, thereafter, uh, Arthur Crawley, his father, was in a, a battle with Budge for the command of his time and his heart and his mind. Budge loved filming, and when he started uh, Crawley Films, his father actually funded it and and backed him. Yeah, that's interesting because we can say, I guess, I guess honestly, that he was. Kind of a son of a of a rich man, right? <laughs> His father was rich. Certainly, in Ottawa terms, he was rich. He had a very successful yeah. um, and and a very successful accounting firm. And interesting for the story of Budge, Arthur was not a civil servant, which is what you associate Ottawa with. Yeah. So maybe that independent spirit was a little bit of an inheritance. And but uh, Budge later on, he kind of because I know the influence of his dad, uh, he became. 
a chartered accountant, didn't he? He did indeed. And uh, he used a motorcycle to the different accounts he had. One time when it rained, he just took, all, took off all his clothes and, and went off on his motorcycle. And when his father found out, it was, there was heaven to pay, so to speak. And uh, he was not suited. He just he did what he had to do. But once he had the film uh, bug, yes. he spent all his time making films. Yeah, that, that's what I found the, the, from the book is that when you read about his Butch's personality, he was like athletic he had a constant energy. Yes. Uh, he was ambitious. He, you don't associate that with being an accountant, you know. Exactly. Um, and uh, it must have been a bit of a, a tight fit for him, so to speak. And there's wonderful sort of Canadiana aspects to him, his personality, in which he would swim Canadian lakes. And when we say that, he would swim across an entire lake and back. He used to swim underneath the locks. Um, that are in Ontario, which means swimming underwater for 25 feet without breathing. Um, lots of daring do got arrested once or twice for um, hijinks. He also he didn't drink in the beginning, but uh, that changed later in his life. Um, a very charismatic, um, vibrant and bright young man, but not with a lot of common sense. And one of the things that happened to him as a teenager is he met a woman named Lenore uh, McVitie, I think was her last name, and fell in love. But his father put a stop to it because um, she was not regarded as a, a, a suitable match for him. Uh, and she, he want, Arthur wanted someone a little more oh, high class and pointed budge towards the girl next door, Judy Sparks, and uh, of the family, the Sparks Street Mall and so forth. Okay. Yeah, I remember this. I actually grew up in Ottawa, so I'm familiar with all the the names ah. the lands, and, the, and the streets and all that. Um, but it was kind of ironic because his father, he kind of encouraged him to be, I guess, an account, a uh, typical kind of, want him to have like a secure job and a normal job and you know, like most parents do. Uh, but by giving him a film camera, he <laughs> much ruined that uh, hope. Of, Un unwittingly, without, yes. Unwittingly, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of ironic to say the least. It certainly um, is. Now, let's, now, so you talk about the fact that his first love, Lenore, uh, well, that, didn't happen so he switched to another girl called judy i don't know what her last name is sparks and that sparks oh yes sparks yes and uh skipping ahead like so eventually you know there was a, a romance i'm assuming he did like her or, or love her i guess absolutely yes um and it was so a great match of minds as well she was brilliant yeah because in the book she sees i guess more the uh, as you say more of the intellectual type i guess Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And she had uh, both a high intelligence and a very keen film eye. And she helped him get better, um, for example. And she, um, she would think about things like natural light versus studio light and so forth. And very much uh, encouraged him to focus on Canadian subjects. I think he would have anyway, because at that time, Canadians didn't really think of other countries as as perhaps Britain, but um, our gaze was more inward. And uh, she encouraged him in making films such as um, of indigenous subjects. Their honeymoon film, 
was called Ile d'Orient. They went to Ile d'Orient and uh, filmed the, the scenery, the people and so forth, and it won an International Amateur Film Award. Um, so right from the get-go, the two of them were into film and choosing really good subjects. Yeah, in a way, it was it was a good match because it seems, at least from the book, that she was equally, uh, as you say, uh, bitten by the, the filmmaking bug and uh, just like him. So mm -hmm. it seems a pretty good uh, uh, combination. Um, because obviously, you, spent, you mentioned in the book, yeah, they went on their honeymoon and the I guess they packed their usual clothes, but they also packed a bunch of movie equipment in their luggage to make a movie while they were on their honeymoon. Yes, an award-winning movie. Yeah, and if that's not proof of, uh, you know, being, I guess, uh, not, not, I wouldn't say fanatic, but being into it, I don't know what is. Um, so they went, and they, that movie made, uh, actually won an award, right? Back in the days, uh, they used to call these things, the movies they made, kind of amateur movies, I guess. Yes. Uh, nobody uses that word anymore, but that usually meant that, I guess it wasn't made technically by a movie studio or professional, but that's all relative anyway. But, but it, they were the first, were they the first one who won an award for a movie in Canada? Or there must have been somebody else. Um, that I don't know so much because we had um, different people doing different things, just, mm -hmm. you know, pioneers, so to speak. But they garnered the most awards of any um, Canadian, yeah. well, I can't say company because it wasn't that far along at the time, but mm -hmm. uh, filmmakers. Okay. Again, back on the honeymoon, well, they did their movie. And that's great. They come back to Ottawa. And they're saying, and Bert says, I'm moving to Hollywood. And his father says, no, you're not. <laughs> and uh, I think his wife also didn't want to move to Hollywood. Uh, of course. Uh, no. and, and Judy's personality would be such that she would never see the point. Um, yeah. Because, again, she, she was so in love with Canada. And he was, too. But he thought, and many people thought, the only route to becoming a film producer was to go to Hollywood. Yeah, back in those days, that's pretty much what everybody was doing. But yes. and in a way, that makes them even more, I guess, unique because, yeah, okay, they had the thought, but they didn't do it. But instead of just, you know, I guess, settling into uh, being an accountant, he, he had the, I was at the time, kind of crazy idea. Okay, I'll still be a filmmaker. And in Canada, which is, in a way, you say bad enough in that for that period, but I'm going to do it in Ottawa, which is adding... Uh, <laughs> An extra level of difficulty, to say the least. Which, uh, um, you know, bunch love challenges. <laughs> yeah. But he also well, was tied to his father uh, still, and because he needed his father's money. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I got, that's what I got from the book, that, yeah, he was, I mean, he was under his influence uh, morally and maybe in other ways, but also financially. Exactly. <laughs> that uh, when he decided to create a uh, film company in Ottawa. His father helped him out. He gave him a loan. Uh, and, no, you know, not too many people could have done that if they didn't have the rich daddy. And uh, that's true. Um, but he, Arthur also imposed his own Christian strictures on the company. No filming on Sundays and uh, no drinking, no parties, etc. which Budge very quickly learned to hide <laughs> he had yeah. no intention of following his father's orders but he he sort of lived a double life with his dad at that point anyway um but he, he was full budge was full of enthusiasm not a great deal of business sense 
it, but capable of inspiring people to come along on the fun journey of making films. Yeah, he did have that type of personality that can, I guess, inspire people and convince them. Like that's yes. what you do. It's a quality you kind of need as a as a director. You need to be able to motivate people <laughs> to do stuff that maybe they don't want to do, uh, and inspire people. Uh, that's that's a quality which I guess he was born with. I don't know if he he uh, uh, learned it on the job or he had it, but anyway, he certainly had it. And he was also a very good salesman. Absolutely, he could, he and could pitch things. Yeah, he could pitch things, and he believed what he was pitching, which is the best characteristic. And very, very charismatic, probably a little crazy. But one of the people he inspired was John Grierson, the first head of the National Film Board, which was in Ottawa at the time, and. Uh, Gerson wanted to hire him for the National Film Board. Again, Crawley kind of goes against the grain. He didn't go to Hollywood. He made his own film company in Ottawa. He didn't join the NFB, which seems to be, I guess, the only outlet back in the day for mm -hmm. filmmakers. He really wanted to be independent, right? He wanted to be his own man. Yes. He did. Yeah, that was uh, another thing that struck, struck out, stuck out for, for me. And But let's get more into the details of the movies because, of course, when we say he made the movies, he made what we like was it like a combination of documentary and what was then called sponsored films, which were like early, uh, early kind of commercials, I guess. Yeah. Um, the sponsored films was something that um, came about more in the 1950s because in the 1940s he was very busy and Judy as well making films for the National Film Board as independents and as as part of Crawley Films. Um, films such as uh, air raids and uh, like Budge filmed out of the open door of a uh, um, an airplane, and uh, Judy did <laughs> recipes, wartime recipes. Of course, she was being shunted as a woman, which is not fair um, mm -hmm. for um, housewives to make. These would have been shown in libraries and town halls and so forth across Canada. Um, and then the aforesaid, uh, aforesaid A.Y. Jackson film. So uh, sort of uber-Canadian projects, Newfoundland scene, filmed Saskatchewan and Newfoundland and the West Coast, and an Inuit film called The Fire Within, and uh, a film, as I'd mentioned, of the longhouses and uh, Indigenous subjects. And the sponsored films came as the war ended, and what I'll, I'll explain what sponsored films are. They're sort of like industrial films. If a company like um, uh, in SO Imperial, Imperial Oil, uh, wants to film what I guess is a long commercial, but we're talking about 10-minute, 20-minute films that are often the only record we have of some of the beautiful Canadian history of the time, um, they would hire uh, Budge. Now, the NFB was also support supposed to be part of whatever growing landscape they were, but Budge was stealing some of their more uh, interesting projects out from under their noses by just going and talking to um, the clients and then supplementing what he did with the uh, industrial films on the other side. Budge's industrial films includes included the the children. Judy was at the time making the ages and stages films on the different stages of childhood. But Budge was, had no sense of boundaries, I guess you could say. 
including one time when he was making a film for fire prevention and they needed to show a, uh, a house on fire. So he took one of his children, put it in a crib. This is when he's supposed to be looking after it and had promised Judy he would do so. Put the child in the crib, set the crib on fire, set the room on fire and filmed it. <laughs> Throughout the day, he'd be arrested. Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. That, yeah, here's uh, an interesting thing, too. Judy was not too troubled by it. Yeah. They would do whatever it took to make films, and that included uh, their own family. Yes. I, yeah, I guess you could say they really were hardcore filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. But Budge, uh, always, he sees him really... Uh, as he, I guess, another of the epithets, I guess you say, was that he was a bit eccentric, and uh, he had—he didn't seem to care what other people were thinking about him or not how he looked. Because I remember in, there's an example in the, one of the in your book, I think it's one of the early days when he was filming someone, a worker at the Calgary Stampede, and he didn't like the look of his of the guy's uh, pants or something, and, and he asked him if he had anything else to wear, and he said no. And so Budge took off his own pants and gave them to him. Yes, yes. Uh, in the middle yes. of a crowd in the day, everybody could see. He was, well, he was in his underwear, of course. He wasn't naked, but I guess, I guess, I'm assuming. <laughs> but that's the type of thing he would do. He it's had this, no uh, self-consciousness, I don't think. Um, and yeah. he'd be thinking about the shot, always wanting to get the shot. When he filmed, did a film called Newfoundland Scene, uh, when Newfoundland joined uh, Canada, he um, he was would go on ships and uh, climb the mask. And this is a man who was seasick. Mm. He would climb the mask to film. He would do whatever it took on a uh, a ship to film. And actually, the the film the filmage. What's that called? The the land the stock the, the film stock, stock from yeah. that. Uh, Newfoundland scene film was later used in David, David Lane's films. Uh, Lane bought some. The this is the Lawrence Barabia uh, movie maker bought some of that stock from Budge to use. So very high quality stuff that gives you a sense of that he wasn't just willing yeah, to be uh, shooting film. Yeah, that was uh, David Lane, right? He was uh, he was yeah. no uh, no slacker himself. Yeah. That's right. Uh, um, but okay, so I guess I, I got the two confused. So in the early forties, they were. Work, so he was actually, technically he wasn't working for the NFB, but he was providing movies to the NFB, right? Working on, on con contract. Contract, for, for yeah. So technically he wasn't working for the government, but the NFB being government agency, he, he was getting money from them. Yeah, he would movies. take money from whoever was willing to give it to him. Because he was also hiring people and growing very rapidly at the time. And he was also trying to get away with the least he could pay his employees, the least he could play, pay for his equipment. And so a real hustler. Mm, yeah. And uh, going back to the movies, like he was making movies for the NFB and a lot of them were classics, like the, the Loon's Necklace, which I saw recently, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually pretty good, even after, what, 80 years or I don't know how long it's been, and, it's 60 years. But he made those movies for the NFB, and then later on, not skipping too too far in the future, but the NFB sometimes took credit for the movies he made for them, right? Well, that the Loon's Necklace is an excellent example because it has, over the years, been seen by 600 million people. And mm. I'm not exaggerating. It's just been a stock part of um, education 
And uh, let's just say you say repeat that again. Six hundred. It's like six zero zero million let, people. Let me double check here because I'm starting to wonder about. It might that. be sixty million. Maybe, maybe that's it. So let's let's look up the loons necklace and yes. Sorry, George. Um, an estimated 33 million people have seen the Loon's Necklace in okay. the year since its release in 1949. Okay, it won- even, yeah, even that is a lot for a Canadian movie. But this had over a period of decades. Of and international. Yeah, international. So that's pretty impressive for a Canadian movie. Made what? Made in the 40s? Yes. 1949, 40s. it came out. I just want to add here, it, it won first prize at the International Film Festival in Venice. And at the International Cinema Festival in Gardone, Italy, first prize in art music films at the Cleveland Film Festival, and it garnered Canada's first Oscar or whatever you would call it, first award for the best film at the Canadian Film Awards. Mm. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Uh, and NFB, kind of basically the movies he made for were distributed via the NFB through film libraries and in school so that a large amount of people could see them because uh, obviously those films were, that he made were not distributed in what we call normal, I guess, movie theaters, right? Yes, yes. And as you said, the um, the archives of the NFB uh, did, say, did attribute the Loon's Necklace, um, achievements of the Loon's Necklace to the NFB, and then it put in brackets, Crawley Films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there was a strange rivalry, I guess, between those two that in the book that you kind of hint at. You don't go too much details, but NFP, uh, I guess, being a government, you know, people people don't know. Well, still around actually, <laughs> even though it's pretty much under the radar these days. But uh, you know, it was a government. Uh, it is a government-funded agency, and he was independent, to say the least. Which is so a different I, perspective or a different approach to movie making. Mm-hmm. And it also contributed to a different view of Canada. And that's key to the story of Budge Crawley. And how, how is that different? The mentality? Uh, uh, it's, the, the National Film Board saw itself as a keeper of the intellectual um, view of Canada. Actually, a, more, a greater in, uh, interest in, in international intellectualism, reaching the highest standards that creativity could in an intellectual way. Budge was a hustler, as I said, and uh, he had a deep love for Canada. And he was, his was the love of the ordinary person. Now, he made some, some pretty uh, high caliber and high subject films later on, which we'll get into. But um, it wasn't the esoteric approach to Canada that uh, the NFB had. It was more of a loving, energetic, um, and muscular approach, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, so we saw, okay, we've covered the fact that he made movies for the NFB. And these were, I guess, uh, we could say educational or... Educational, like but, yeah. but Loon's Necklace was distributed everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to think of the audience being different at that time because people would go to libraries to watch their films. And we're not mm-hmm. talking about any feature-length films at this point. No. Um, mostly shorts, 20, 30 minutes at most. And uh, there was no distribution network, per se, for 
com commercial theaters. There were some commercial co uh, commercial theaters in different cities, larger ones, but the network that we know of today hadn't started up, and it was that network that would kill Budge's influence in the 1960s, mm. but we'll get to that. Yeah, okay. So then later on, uh, he, or maybe at the same time, I don't know, he did the sponsored type of films for corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, and these was actually, that was a pretty um, a lucrative uh, market, I guess. They they uh, bank bankrolled the rest of the, the more creative stuff that he did and the, uh, the uber Canadian stuff that he did. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, there were hundreds of these in production. And this is when uh, Crawley Films had grown to its greatest number of employees, which was over 100 in the 1950s and early 60s. Uh, and just as you know, a lot of people will talk about the Benedict Cumberbatches of the world who who are in Marvel films, mm -hmm. and that subsidizes their creative work. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing, and it certainly wasn't then. Mm, okay. And this, just for people who, I mean, these sponsored films, I guess they used to be called industrial films, or mm -hmm. now they'd be just commercials or shorter commercials. But they had, I just, I just, just for, I thought it was funny. Some of the, the sponsored films that you mentioned had titles like, uh, you know, <laughs> Brampton Builds a Car. Or yeah. <laughs> uh, even more hilarious, uh, The Story of Meat in Canada. So we can tell from the titles what type of movies these were. Yes, um, which is, is very succinct and to the point. <laughs> yeah. It tells you, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, now, Okay, so he got in the 40s and 50s, he was doing these things, he, he was making a lot of money. And But just as a side note, we have to mention that he actually had, he after working, I guess, from his home for a while, he decided that he made enough money that he uh, rented some space or bought a studio or a studio space in the Ottawa suburb. Mm -hmm. And he built, like, he had equipment. He had vans, he had a film lab. Even had an animation studio. Is that right? Um, yes. So, so though some of that was contracted out, and uh, in the perfect perfect example of how Budge was Budge in, in hiring all these people and building all this studio, which I used to see when I was a kid in Ottawa, um, and uh, the trucks and so forth. He bought himself a checker cab, a tax, an old you know those big old boxy taxis from New mm. York City. And he drove around in that and he would occasionally pick up what people people thought he was a taxi driver and he would pick up fares. And he took yeah. great glee in sometimes picking up prospective clients from the airport and driving them to his um, film headquarters and then introducing himself. That's the oh, kind of thing he liked to do. Yeah, that's that was I guess typical. He would he had his yeah he had a taxi and he would just go up to the airport to pick up somebody that he was going to talk to about a film or whatever investors, and then he they thought he was the cab driver. It turns out he was the guy the guy the filmmaker they were going to talk to. That's right. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, now um, at the same time as the he was making lots of money and the company was making lots of money and he was stiffing his employees, frankly. Um, but because of his charisma, able to demand so much quality from them, very good filmmakers, they were making what was called the RCMP series, the first um, miniseries, I guess you'd call it, or the first series on the, on the CBC. And on again, television. it was another yes. first done mm -hmm. by uh, Budge and the people at Crawley Films. 
Yeah, that, yeah the Canadian uh, first TV series, and of course, it had to be about the Mounties. I guess that that was. It's a handy I, subject. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he that he, they were filming back in the Gatineau Hills, weren't they? Or yes. They had the, yeah, back in the day, um, and it was a, a successful TV show, right? It was shown all over the world in the U.S. also and everything. Mostly in Europe, um, as far as um, abroad goes, but yes, it was it was a success. Again, starting to discover that creative things don't make the same uh, great amount of money that industrial or sponsored films do. But it was considered a very good series. And there were great stories about, you know, RCMP consultants on on the film and uh, running around the Gatineau Hills, uh, sort of like a a Keystone Cops kind of expedition Mm. of filmmaking. (laughs) So, okay, so then he did did this awesome TV show. He got... Uh, so by the end of the the fifties, uh, the end of nineteen fifty, yeah, he had made like a thousand, at least a thousand films, and mm-hmm. uh, seen in twenty one countries. So we're not talking about just some local independent filmmaker making one movie every five years. Obviously, he was it was his own. He was an independent filmmaker, but he had his own studio and his own crew, and he had a staff, and so he was technically. I mean, it's not a movie studio in the sense of the American movie studios but it was about as close as, as one could get in canada and again i have to emphasize it's, it was in ottawa so maybe it's the people who focus too much on toronto and montreal that we need to talk to because ottawa yeah. is okay if you've got somebody like budget for making yeah making well movies. he had the yeah he did have the personality to to make that uh to make that successeful yes uh, and uh, is, in, in these films uh a lot of Canadian Canadians got their starts. Christopher Plummer, for example, um, was in a uh, one of Budge's short films, and uh, Rich yeah, Little, did. the impressionist yeah. and comedian. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, all the actors that. Well, we haven't got gone to start to talk about the features, but later on in the features, yeah, when he got going in feature films. He had like uh, was Christopher Plummer was his, his first role in a his movie. His first role was in a, sp- a sponsored film. Sponsored film with Kate yeah. Aiken, um, and he actually wasn't even named in the film's promotion. Um, but yeah, it helped um, Canadian actors. Some Canadian actors get their starts, and there's funny little things where you see in a sponsored film. My goodness, I know that face very well. Yeah, he had also Rich Little, who many people might not remember. He was like a impressionist back in the popular in the seventies. I guess mm-hmm. he was pretty big, uh, at least in uh, in the U.S. Yeah, he. He had a career in Vegas. He's still alive, anyway. But yeah. he, he was Ottawa born, so he he uh, had a role in one of the films. Yeah, and, and uh, I I just wanted to say too, at the time he made uh, the RCMP series, he was quoted as saying that Canada can make a place for itself in the world television market by choosing subjects which can be made in Canada. Again, the sense that Canada and Canadians are interesting subjects for film that there was no self-consciousness or um insecurity about it yeah that's i mean i agree yes (laughs) but uh at the time that was that's i wouldn't say it was radical but it was he wasn't in the majority when he thought like that he wasn't but he 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 believed it firmly judy Mm -hmm. believed it firmly and i think frankly you know if you remember in the 60s um canada for a while believed it yeah, let's let's get going with the feature films because 
obviously in the early days of Canada, people who might, I don't know, familiar with early Canadian film history, there wasn't a whole lot going on up until, in terms of feature film production in Canada, up until the 60s when the mm -hmm. government finally got off their ass, basically, and decided we're going to help the Canadian feature film industry by creating this uh, funding corporation called the Canadian Film Development Corporation, now called Telefilm. Mm -hmm. But uh, back then it had a, a better reputation because it was new. It was, but it was 1968, and that's the guy got started. Uh, there was stuff before then, but not as much. That's really when things got started yes. in terms of feature film production. And that's when, I guess, at the same time, Budge just decided, yes, I want to make feature films, right? Well, he was making feature films well before that. Um, oh, okay. The Luck of Gin Ginger Coffee uh, was... Well, that was before 68? Yeah. Yes. And yeah. without, you know, CDFC money, without any money other than um, what he could scrounge up. And it was reviewed in The New Yorker. The Luck of Ginger Coffee was about an, an Irishman in Montreal, trying to make his way in the Canadian uh, economy, in, I guess. Yeah, in Montreal, yeah. In Montreal. And uh, he, that was uh, Amanita de Pestilence with Jean-Bierre Beaujold was in 1967. Uh, and uh, again, I just want to mention two things that were going on in, in Canada at the time. Is Number one, in the early 60s, we did not have a quota for how much Canadian content you had to, to um, produce. And, and Budge was just doing it anyway. You also yeah. had no um, Canadian distribution uh, mm. system, per se. And so 10%, then 20% of movie theaters were being approached for American distribution of films in Canada, any kind of film, American, Canadian, international. So this is how the landscape is shifting so that the Americans are not necessarily taking over the movie production and direction, but they are taking over the distribution and Canadian mm. films will be affected by that. Yeah, he was a bit, well, I wouldn't say lucky, but when he was making his uh, sponsored film and, uh, and all those, he had this distribution, I guess, network for, by, uh, provided by schools and, and universities and the NFB. That was not in the traditional commercial sense, so that helped. And that helped the them. traditional yeah. commercial sense was still evolving. Yeah. And Budge could get his films distributed through Canada um, and somewhat into the United States mm -hmm. until yeah. until the big distributors came came on the scene. Yeah. And, uh, well, let's talk about the features. Uh, the first one that he made, it was not Luck or Ginger Coffee. It was a movie called, I can't believe the title, Amanita pestilence, which is the name of a mushroom, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I when I read it, uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, I'm not sure I want to. But <laughs> it was basically, I mean, it was a bit of a, a contradiction because Budge seemed to be like kind of an everyman kind of um, kind of guy. And, uh, you know, I don't think he would call him an intellectual. So he wasn't that much into, I would say, high concept things. But this movie seemed well by just by the title seemed a bit i just say um highbrow because i mean it was a can, can you tell us this this short story uh, the, what the story is exactly of this amanita pestilence amanita pestilence yes i have to correct you though uh the the first film was luck of ginger coffee and amanita pestilence was in 1967 oh okay. um so and uh luck of ginger coffee was 1964 okay 
so I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, sure. It was, I have seen it. Um, Once is enough. Yeah. And uh, it was directed by René Bonnier. While um, Budge had been, uh, had started Crawley Films under a rather strict moral code, it was one that he himself uh, had trouble um, keeping. And it was one that the staff, which had changed over the years, and his children had come of age. And as a result, Amanita Pestilence was quite a psychedelic movie. Um, with It was about a man who starts growing mushrooms in his backyard, and then they gradually overtake things, and it, it bothers neighbors and so forth. But it is quite a quite an esoteric film, I guess I would say. Uh, and again, Jean-Bierre Bougeold, it was her first fi film role. I wouldn't say it was one of the one of the most astounding films that was made uh, that came out of Crawley Films, but the or <laughs> out of uh, not Crawley Films particularly, but Budge's pr pr role of produ as producer. Mm -hmm. um, but it also was the film that put Budge head up against the American power of the distribution network because they yeah. chose not to distribute it. And there may have been very good reasons not to do so. But for the first time, René Bonnier and Budge realized that they had to appeal to the American film market or their films wouldn't be seen even in Canada because the American yes. big, big production, uh, big distribution companies had control of both. Hmm, yeah, that's a whole different uh, podcast. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, OK. I just, it just struck me that when I read the description of that this was kind of, it didn't seem like a thing that budge, well, I mean, technically, I guess mushrooms are part of the environment, <laughs> I guess. So part of the Canadian landscape, so I guess it would appeal. But No, anyway, it's that's... a sign of how changed uh, the, film see, the film scene, um, the budge's interest in feature films, the, the climate at Crawley Films, and the kind of um, hippy-dippy Canadian scene at the time. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's true. It was, it was a movie for its time, I guess. Okay, let's. But let's. Uh, I guess we're not going chronologically, chronologically, but it doesn't matter. The next one, I just want to say a few things about Luck of Ginger Coffee because I saw it mm -hmm. recently and I really liked it. Um, I think it might be one of the best Canadian films uh, I've seen. Well, in the past, of the past, anyway. It is. I think it is. I just say a classic. Um, but there's a contradiction there. Well, let's first. Say, I saw that the budget was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Is mm -hmm. that true? Yeah, mm -hmm. and he got that money from, I guess you could say, taking the money from his other, the income from his other movies, uh, the uh, sponsored ones, right? Mm -hmm. That's how he was funding this thing. Because back in those days, this was sixty three, sixty four. You said sixty four. Uh, yeah, you couldn't really go to a bank, right? The Bank of Montreal, and say, "Give me seven fifty for a, a movie." Yeah. You'd be laughed at. Yes, and a lot fewer production companies. I think you notice with films nowadays, you'll see four or five different production companies cobbled the money together to make that film, whereas that mm -hmm. was not true in the 1960s. Yeah, so see, so technically he was funding his own movies, really. Yes. Um, but Ginger Coffee uh, stars uh, Robert Shaw. People might remember him as, of course, uh, was it Henry VIII 
in a man for all seasons, mm-hmm. uh, another favorite of mine. Uh, but he also, people for I guess for the the kids out there, he was the uh, he had a pretty brilliant career. He was he was also in a very good movie called The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is like a thriller. Yes. Or, Yes. That was actually also good, but he, he is best remembered, unfortunately or unfortunately, for being the the fisherman who gets uh, eaten by a shark in the Steven Spielberg's <laughs> Jaws movie. Absolutely, so that's just going to be his fame, his his fame uh, coming, uh, his fame moment. But anyway, he, in this movie, he's really good, and he stars with his wife also, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so, I mean, I would recommend people actually see it. You can actually see it on uh, YouTube, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there is a copy of it, a bad copy, but it's uninterrupted by commercials. I was going to say about luck of ginger coffee uh, that, um, I mean, I like the movie and everything, but it is, even though it is produced by Canadian and it's a Canadian story, <laughs> this you know, a bunch of foreign actors. Uh, Robert Shaw was what, Irish or British? Irish. And uh, it was directed by Irvin Kirshner, an American, who uh, I guess we could say a little bit of trivia there. He made a pretty good career in Hollywood and he ended up directing one of the Star Wars movies. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a, lo- that's a long road from Ginger Coffee to Star Wars. It's but, um, uh, that's the contradiction is that, okay, it's, it's a Canadian story that takes place in Canada and Montreal in the movie, movie looks like Montreal. It doesn't look like, it doesn't try to hide itself, which is what, what the thing that was very frequent back in those days. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, you know, the crew, like the editor was also American, director was American and Budge didn't direct. He was just a producer. And that just seemed, seemed strange. Like he, he wasn't really interested in directing. He had uh, moved feature. on from directing by this point because uh, it was the the money maker and the hustler in him. He realized he could do more in in terms of producing, in terms of raising money and making money than he could as a, a director. So he didn't direct any more films um, by the time the early '60s came around. Mm. And he couldn't find like a. Canadian director. I guess that's a question I can't answer, but uh, I think. Without trying to explain it away, I think Kirshner came with his own package of people. And because uh, with Bonnier and with Emily de Pestilence, it went back to a, a Canadian uh, cast and crew. Mm-hmm. No, yes, cast and crew. Um, so it would depend on the individual film. But I see your point. Yeah. Okay. So what happened uh, after Ginger Coffee? Well, uh, Butch's life. Uh, began to change. His personal life began to change because he took up again with Lenore Crawley, if you remember, Lenore, Lenore McVitie, who, if you remember, was his, his girlfriend when he was a teenager. And they mm-hmm. came back into each other's lives. And Budge began living a double life. Uh, Lenore was in Toronto. And Judy was, of course, still in Ottawa. And he, in fact, married Lenore um, without divorcing Judy. Uh, I had a conversation with his his lawyer when I interviewed him for the book, and uh, he explained how Budge finagled that by going to getting getting married in the United States, driving to Buffalo, getting married without producing the documents. So in a very Canadian kind of bigamy, he would drive back and forth between Ottawa and Toronto every week, uh, live with Nor- Lenormand for part of it and live with Judy for another part of it, and broke Judy's heart when she yeah. found out, but there were, uh, he enlisted 
either I think unwittingly, just by being who he was, the uh, the workers at Crawley Films were enlisted to help keep the two women apart. And in fact, we're we're going to talk about the rowdy man. But at that time, during filming, Budge would show up with one Mrs. Crawley one week and another Mrs. Crawley the next week. Uh, nice. And at the premiere of the of, uh, the rowdy man in 1971 which was attended by Pierre Trudeau and his young bride, Margaret. Um, the staff of Crawley Films was involved in keeping one Mrs. Crawley at one end of the, of the reception and the other Mrs. Crawley at the other. Um, a rather sordid and yet completely budge-like um, kind, of, kind of event and kind of way of doing things. Hmm. So he was, I guess, technically, a bigamist, basically. Yes. Yeah. But as I said, a very Canadian kind. <laughs> low, low key. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't advertise it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the reason, of course, uh, what did the, do you know? What Judy? Judy didn't. The, didn't know about Lenore. Is that? Um, one can only speculate. And for a brilliant mind and a, an extraordinary woman, um, there may have been a certain amount of choosing not to know. Uh, and, you know, it, it, in the 1970s, she was still working with him. The, it, but in the 1960s, when this happened, she was producing many, many films for Expo 67 and was extremely busy. So it's, it's murky and perhaps private what happened at that time. But there seemed to be a lot of um, juggling on Bugge's part. And uh, perhaps willful blindness on the part of others. <laughs> okay. Um, so then afterwards, later on, uh, let's talk about, let's get back to the movies. And he made a documentary, which I, 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 I don't think I've seen, but I remember the posters back in the day of Janis Joplin. Um, and he got, he, I think in a lot of ways, he probably might have been the only person able to get the rights to her life story from her mother. He, yes. he was, he was a Christian. He knew the Bible and his, Janice Joplin's mother was a fundamentalist Christian, I guess. Yes. And that's he, a really interesting and very budge story is that yeah. as a producer, as I said, he was um, trying to make different films. And when Janice Joplin died, her mother had the rights to her life story. And um, many film producers went to visit her, his uh, Janice Joplin's mother and uh, budge beat them all out. These were young sort of hip and clever filmmakers, but budge, Here's where Arthur, all, uh, Arthur Crawley comes in. He raised his boy right. He sent him to Bible school, and Budge could quote the Bible to Janice Joplin's mother, and he got the rights to Janice's life. Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, sometimes these things come in handy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he made the movie, and uh, still on my to, to do list to watch. I'm, not sure, I'm sure it's available. Uh, but just as a side, again, a side note, all these movies, like Luck of Ginger Coffee, even Amanita Pestilence, uh, are, there, are they on DVD? Do you know? I honestly don't know. Um, I do have, I have seen Janice, which maybe have been even on CD. DVD is probably the best way to look, but I'm afraid I don't know. 
Okay. Uh, just curious because uh, sometimes uh, Canadian films not only are they hard to to see in movie theaters, but they're hard to see even in uh, the, in the world of DVD. Anyway, uh, he made the Janis Joplin documentary. Was it a success? Yeah, it was, and and um, not in big terms, but certainly it's considered one of the great critical documentaries of. Um, Janis Joplin's life, I shouldn't say critical in the sense of the assessment of her, because it was completely um, footage of Janis mm -hmm. Joplin and some of footage of her from the uh, cross-Canada trip of several uh, well-known musicians and singers at the time. So there was uh, Canadian content, I suppose, in there, but it uh, is neither here nor there uh, as far yeah, as Janis Joplin was, concerned. There was, you mentioned in a book, just I thought it was kind of funny or says something about Canada is that there was this rock kind of festival kind of thing group that crossed that travel across Canada and it was funded by the Canadian government. I'm not sure why. And <laughs> it's Janice Joplin wasn't a star back then. She was just a singer with one of the, the bands, right? And right. they filmed they had some footage of her singing and they the and then later on she became famous and this documentary just had footage from that rock uh, thing across Canada and additional footage. So but Bud, uh, Bud did not direct again. He was just a producer, right? Correct. Uh, correct. And uh, I'm just trying to find the producer or the director was, but it was Howard like Alk and Seton Fil Filming. And it was, it was released by Universal. Oh, okay. um, so this was one time when the American distributors uh, paid note. Hmm. Okay. Well, at least that's something. And then Let's move on to, I guess, not this last feature because that's a whole special thing. Yeah. But uh, the 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 one that basically you start off the book with him. Well, it's not going to be a spoiler. He wins an Oscar for a movie he uh, he made called "The Man Who Skied Down Everest." And could you talk about that? The Man Who Skied Down Everest was um, a collection of footage of. The uh, the skier uh, Yuchiro Mura. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and it was footage that Budge bought. It had not been released. And uh, Budge and Lenora went. She was Lenore Lenore Crawley by this point. They went and filmed supplementary footage with the racing skier and uh, released it. And it was nominated for best documentary feature. Uh, in 1976, and it won. And so that was Budge's step onto the stage of the uh, Academy of Awards. Uh, and uh, he he mentioned it as a Canadian producer with an American uh, distributor and a Japanese skier fi uh, filming in Nepal. Is it Nepal for the for the mountain as an, as oh, yeah. a truly international film? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But he that and that was the height of his Hollywood phase. He and Lenore did um, press runs and and showing screenings in uh, Hollywood. He started to see himself as a Hollywood producer at this time, uh, and that was not necessarily the best thing for him to do because he became his hustling started to run the company into the ground. Yeah, I get the impression from reading that really. It, 
winning, I guess winning, winning an Oscar changes people, but it really changed him. And he, but not for the best, right? It just, he seems to become a bit, I don't know. Uh, I guess he saw himself a more uh, into, on the inter- international stage or more important. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's uh, an interesting thing because film, filmmaker Adam McGoyan, who came along later, refers to Budge as a pioneer, and he was. And film director Alan King, who's one of Canada's greatest film directors, referred to him as a riverboat hustler, river no riverboat gambler, mm-hmm. and uh, that. By this point, if you met Budge, he was all about hustling and making money and fleecing uh, people. It it was quite sad yeah. in, in this way. And he wore two watches, one with Los Angeles time and one with Canadian time. And as one of his, <laughs> was, one of his employees said, can't you just subtract three hours? Um, so it was uh, all about show. But wow. he he said at this point in his life, he felt Canadians didn't care much about their films. So there may have been a reaction to what was going on in Canada, that we were we like distributed product from the United States, that we didn't care about Canadian um, content, so to speak. But at the same time, the Canadian government with the CFTC was uh, starting to care about it for us. And. Mm-hmm. The most important thing to me as his biographer was that underneath it all, Budge still loved his country and showed it by making a film that became the undoing of Crawley Films, what it was called The Strange One, an uber Canadian film about about a love story between a, um, a white man and a Métis woman, and uh, as well as in parallel, a story of two Canadian geese. Yeah, I when I read that, I said, "Wow, that you can't get more Canadian than that." Yeah. But, uh, so here's, uh, this, the, outer, here's that, the outer here's the outer shell of Budge, who, have, who looks like he's abandoned his uh, Canadian roots and this secret passion of his. So he was mm. quite a quite a complex man. Yeah, it's kind of a contradiction in a way. Yeah, I remember the story about the the wristwatches. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, the, the the one wristwatch on Hollywood time and the one on, I guess Ottawa time. Uh, <laughs> it's just like you said, it, he in the book. I said you say it wasn't that he he didn't like do this like in a pretentious way. He just wanted to 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 show people that he was like a big. I guess I guess he was slightly pretentious. I guess yeah, uh, this is the being a, a big time, <laughs> uh, yeah, a big time Hollywood producer. Because see, I got two watches, and I'm on. I Hollywood people know me, and and so on. It's, it's funny, but it's kind of sad at the same time. It's, it is, uh, but, and you think about um, the influence that Judy had on his filmmaking, and the influence that Lenore had on his filmmaking. I when I interviewed her, she had the Oscar on a mantle no. on, in her oh, yeah. apartment, and yeah, and uh, so. Some have seen that as the influence each had on the way he lived. Is she still alive? Uh, Not now, but she was oh. at the time when I uh, wrote oh. the book. Yeah, I, I, I just love these, these stories. I mean, he's such a character. I Just one more story that I found hilarious was that after winning the Oscar, he's in the plane going back to Ottawa. <laughs> he's got the Oscar in a bag, but not like. Just like a plastic bag, like uh, an honest in, Ed's bag. Yeah, and people in Toronto will will re- remember honest Ed. Uh, he had a like a cheap kind of like a cheap store yeah. selling goods, and he he was famous anyway in Toronto. And but he had the Oscar in that kind of bag, 
And uh, you would think, well, that's cute. He doesn't take it too seriously because he puts it in a bag. But what he does is that he talks to his uh, the guy sitting next, on the plane next to him, and he asks him, like, what do you think I've got in my bag? And he proceeds to ask the whole crew and the passengers. On that flight. Uh, yeah, on that flight. What do you think I have in my bag? And he not only that, but he takes bets yes. as to what he has in his bag. And he ends up making, then he shows people, because nobody would have thought a guy like that would have an Oscar. So he shows the, uh, the Oscar and he ends up making $1,000. Uh, it's I mean, pure wow. budge. That's just, uh, well, as they say, you can't make up stuff like that. Um, so, so, but it is, uh, I guess, going back to the, the sad part is that he does go to his head, this Hollywood song, and he becomes, but at the same time that he becomes a bit unbearable, he's got this uh, project. Oh, do you want to talk about the Rowdy Men? Because I guess we skipped that, but. Uh, we did talk about it in terms of his personal life. And, yeah. uh, but the Rowdy Men, I think, is quite familiar to Canadians. And Gordon Pinson, who died recently, I, I think it yeah, was that's the, true. the uh, epoch of his career. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. film about a Newfoundland man and uh, his, his and, hijinks. Uh, and of course, Budge was the producer of that. Of course, co-producer. Yes, co-producer. Yeah. And it, and as I said, it was at the premiere. There's a wonderful photograph of Budge coming out of the the uh, again Ottawa um, Film uh, Theater with uh, Pierre Trudeau looking young and dashing and long haired with his with his his newly uh, married bride Mark. Yeah, you you have that. Uh, yeah, you have actually that picture in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's wild. Uh, if I remember uh, the, from the look of it, that's the Capitol movie theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. brought me back to my uh, childhood. Anyway, uh, so okay, we're out of men, yes. But uh, well, uh, let's kind of slowly kind of wrap this up here. He was this last feature. He was still making. He really kind of didn't care anymore about sponsored film or industrial films. He really wanted to get more into features, and he had a project like you mentioned called The Strange One, mm-hmm. which is, again, kind of a strange title. and about uh, this, Appropriately for Budge at this point, but yes, yeah, it was the I, name no, he, of a book he, that he brought the rights to. Yeah, and it kind of could, almost could refer to, to him, I guess. Um, but the story of a zoologist who falls for a Native woman, and then about geese from the Scottish Hebrides who migrate to Ontario and mate for life with a Canadian goose. And uh, that's an eccentric kind of story, but it's a type of movie in a way that could have passed or done, been done, I think, in the 40s or even the 50s. But I couldn't see that being made today. I mean, it would take a lot of skill as a writer or a scriptwriter to make this pass or make this believable. And in the book you mentioned, he went through a lot of scriptwriters to actually make this, make this, I guess, believable or filmable anyway yeah and hopefully compelling and you you have to remember in those days too which would have been the uh, late 70s uh, yeah late 70s early 80s before budge died he um had to pay for special effects using things like filming geese in a wind tunnel mm. where apparently they lost a few geese <laughs> to the wind yeah. tunnel before um, they did it successfully. They have some. There was some good f- footage of flying geese, and but he built a film a, a warehouse to include the film tunnel. It cost over a million dollars. 
This is not the man who was, you know, cleverly losing sponsored uh, film money to make a Canadian and um, and compelling features or even uh, TV series mm-hmm. from the 50s and 60s. Uh, he it, it was bloated yeah. and it was just losing money hand over a fist. And he saw the banks as their obligation was to keep this marvelous film afloat and gradually um, bankrupted his company or brought it to the point where he had to sell it for a dollar to a one-time employee. Hmm. So he spent all his money, but the feature never got made. Like he just spent the money on the wind tunnel, basically. Basically. Yes. Yeah. And he got like 10 minutes of footage of of geese. Wonderful footage. Now listen, the the interesting thing too, is that there was, I think a film called the wild one with Jeff Daniels that uh, used some of the, of the, not the footage, but the technology from that film in an American film, but it was not of no use to budge by that point. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I vaguely remember that movie that was back in the eighties or yes. And Anna Paquin was in it as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember. Yeah, because it, 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 this guy, anyway, he was the geese. Anyway, yeah. Well, I guess it wasn't a complete waste. I guess. <laughs> um, but they, that's sad because he just. Yeah, I guess it's. I don't know how to say. I mean, it's like, anyway, some but kind of a typical kind of a story of, of sometimes the filmmakers who go off the deep end with a deep end with a project and they're obsessed with it. And the like Michael Cimino or something like that, yes. you know, where they just go all the way and they don't care about, you know, it's not their money. So they just and they lose it and it ends up costing them either their life or their career or their reputation or so on. That's another very typical kind of scenario. It is. Uh, what I find so moving and compelling about it is that it com- contains the elements of Budge's dreams and his hopes and who he was at the beginning. Uh, fighting with who he was towards the end of his life. Hmm. Uh, and then oh, let's get into the, I guess, the later years. He he didn't uh, finish this movie, The Strange One. His company was, in a way, taken away from him mm-hmm. by a former employee. But he got like a stipend, I guess, to, to live on. And he, Well, he, he kept the rights to uh, some of the features, like the rights okay. to Janice and, and Ginger Coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but though that was for Faircrest Films, he renamed the, what he had of it. And Bill Stevens was the former employee who bought the uh, company for a dollar and mm-hmm. got more into animation. And in fact, Bill is still around and he has now the um, the rights to the Faircrest Films, such as the features. Oh, yeah. And he sold the, you know, hundreds of Canadian shorts and documentaries and films to the national archives and that was how bench that was how crawley films paid off its debts i see yeah so the national archives bought it from uh, this stevens guy right yeah um Na- national was, archives the national yeah. archive yes and uh, but that was i was going to ask that later but i'll ask it now so if people you know, I guess in the region in Ottawa, they can go to the National Archives and see all these films, right? Yes, or try to access them online, which is much more possible nowadays. Yeah, I, I have to check that out. I'm not sure if they are accessible online, but they should be. But um, so I guess they, because these things usually, like I said, they don't, 
I mean, it's hard, sometimes hard to see. Like the Mantra Ski Down Everest, I saw that recently also. It was on one of those free streaming um, services mm -hmm. uh, with the commercials and everything, but it was accessible. So if people are interested, you can actually go to this. It's called Tubi, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's called a free streaming. You don't have to pay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to subscribe. Just look up a man who skied down Everest and you can actually watch that movie. Um, and But I guess let's just get the sad part of the way he ended up, he, he still continued, I guess, making, he didn't continue to make movies, right? I mean, eventually he had a heart attack or stroke, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, like and what he, years, what he was you know. doing after he retired, I guess you could call it, but uh, in, from the film industry is that he went back to photography mm -hmm. and he filmed uh, Canadian uh, wildlife and natural photography and uh, in a way was revisiting the love of his youth. And he yeah, had he, three girlfriends by this point. <laughs> well, he had a, th a third one. Oh, a okay. third one, I, I, yes. The two wives and a, th and a girlfriend. Uh, and when he was ill in the last stages of his life, they all visited him, but probably hmm. not at the same time. Yeah, the the third one was she was like an editor, right, at the uh, the studio or something. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Uh, he must have been a compelling person. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, if you get three get three women like that, um, and then eventually, of course, the third he had s several stroke, but the third one finally uh, did him in. Um, yes. And he's buried, and he had like a ranch. Uh, so I guess we didn't mention that he had like a, when he was making money, it was, I guess you could say rich. He had a ranch with horses and everything in, um, in Chelsea, the Gatineau right? Hills. Yeah. Yes. Chelsea, in Chelsea. In Chelsea, and, just outside um, of Ottawa. Yeah. I'm familiar with the area, uh, although I didn't know he was buried there. He's buried in a Protestant, Protestant um, cemetery, uh, that, a very old one and his remains. And it's, he's actually buried with his uh, first wife, right? Yes. Yes. And, uh, the family, uh, after, Budge, uh, my book came out. The family went to the cemetery and put a memorial there for Judy. Mm. Um, yeah, the ranch stories are the stories of his the 1960s and when the family was at its, um, at, at its peak, so to speak, with everybody young and doing creative things. But he used to have, um, he had a, a herd of beef cattle. And it was the teenagers, his kid's job to help him round up the cattle at the end of the day. He knew nothing about cattle. He knew nothing about beef. But this was something he thought was fun, mm. uh, which gives you some idea of the kind of man he was. Wow. Um, I, I can't uh, just one more just, you know, might as well finish on the high note or funny note. Uh, I know one of those eccentric stories, which I love. It's about the fact that uh, Budge Crawley back in the day when uh, Trudeau Sr., the first one was prime minister. He offered him, Butch Crawley, offered Trudeau a role in mm -hmm. a movie to play the the, the Grey Owl was was Grey Owl was a, a I guess a British man who masqueraded as a as an indigenous uh, chief. Canadian a chief, chief. Yeah, and it's a famous story which was made later all made in a movie by with Pierce Brosnan, I think. Yeah, and uh, it was made to movie later on. But before that, he actually. <laughs> Call, I don't know if he called him or sent him a letter, but he asked him if he would play the role of Grey Owl. And this became known 
And the Canadian press I get in the book is that they didn't believe it. They thought this is like, this is like made up stuff, right? But it turned out to be true because Trudeau did write him back saying, well, thanks for the offer, but you know, I can't do it. But maybe after my political career, of course, he was joking, obviously. He was. But, you know, I, I think that's another illumination of uh, a budge in, in the sense that, number one, he asked Trudeau. And yeah. number two, I think that would have been a good choice. I mean, I'd pay money to see that movie. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, wow. I don't think he could put it off, Trudeau, I guess, back in the day. He might have been. But another, anyway. another complicated man with lots of charisma. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So they were, in a way, it would have been interesting to see them on the set together. <laughs> but it's one of those things. But anyway, that's a, that's a good, funny story to end. But before we end, uh, definitely, uh, I just asked some, I, asked, I guess, I want to say a question which is usually asked about filmmakers. What do you think is uh, Budge Crawley's legacy in the Canadian uh, film history? Budge Crawley was the kind of Canadian um, filmmaker that um, indicates our youth and our Wild West approach to our own country. Uh, and his legacy is his view of Canada, I think, his love of Canada. And I, I lent the book to a friend of mine who, when she came back, she said, you know, um, somebody like him doesn't exist anymore. But she said, I also yeah. think that kind of Canada doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And uh, I know we've gone on to wonderful things, but I miss that kind of that vision of Canada as as uh, a can-do, daring kind of place, and Budge embodied that for me. So it's his story, perhaps. You cannot um, say he was the, the, the source of some of our, our, our greatest films. We all know that, what those greatest films are, and they were produced in some ways by the National Film Board, by people who worked together with Americans and Europeans, uh, and the directors are people like Adam McGoyan who considered Budge such a pioneer. Uh, that's, that's our head. I think Budge was our heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Yeah. No, there won't be anyone like him. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, so thanks for her doing this. And uh, Barbara Wade-Rose, and do you have, um, well, I mentioned the book. I guess I, sh I think I should mention the book. I'll mention more than once. The book is called Budge. It's called, uh, in the sub subtext, What Happened to Canada's King of Film? And the author is Barbara Wade-Rose. Well, thank you for doing this. It was My a very, pleasure. very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of Episode 8, The Story of Budge Crawley. Uh, listening again uh, to this interview, it struck me that someone should make a movie biopic of his life. Now, that would be a very interesting uh, movie. Uh, if Robert Shaw was still alive, he would be the perfect actor for that role. So if uh, someone has a few millions to invest in a movie, uh, email me and I'll, uh, I'll make that happen. The book itself, uh, Budge, What Happened to Canada's King of Film, is unfortunately out of print. But it can still be found on Amazon and Abe Books. I've put links to the book from both of these in the podcast notes and on the podcast's website if you are interested in reading it, and you should be.
Again, the book was written by Barbara Wade Rose, and my thanks again to the author for coming on my podcast. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com, nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now.